The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Good morning. The scripture reading for today is 1 Peter 3:18. If you are reading from the Black Pew Bibles in front of you, you can find it on page 955. So when you are ready, please stand for the reading of God's word. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Amen. Well, thank you for being here this morning. Um, as you just heard, um, maybe some of you are secretly fist pumping. You're like, I think this Easter sermon is seriously going to be about one verse. And you're like, yeah, it is. Okay, it is. All right. Um, but I'm not making any claims that one verse means it's a short sermon, okay? So, um, well, we're going to continue um, celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead this morning. Um, if you're into taking uh, uh, sermon titles and writing them down, the sermon title is pretty simple today, coming out of verse 18. It's this, Jesus Christ suffered, put to death, but made alive. And so what we're going to do this morning is concentrate on those three realities and what they mean for you and I when we think about Jesus Christ's suffering, being put to death on the cross, but made alive in the Spirit, the Apostle Peter says. And what this has to do with Easter and specifically what this has to do with a phrase maybe you've heard before, heard Christians use before, this phrase of what does it mean to be saved. We're going to take all these things and put them together as we consider this singular verse from Peter's first letter. But before we do that this morning, we need to pause and we need to pray. We need to ask for the power of the Holy Spirit to come and to empower the preaching of His Word. Um, We have not gathered here today for the Jonathan Davis show. Um, We're not here to hear a a, a quaint little message from me. We're here to hear the living God speak from his word. The Christ that borrowed the tomb for three days speaks. Because he's not dead, he's living. Luke 24, one of my favorite phrases in all the resurrection stories is the people run to the grave, the graves open, they look in, and the two shining ones, the angels are like, why are you looking for the living among the dead? You don't look for living people in a place where dead people are. He is alive. And what we need is the power, the spirit of the living Christ to speak through this singular verse today. So I'm going to borrow the language of Pastor Tom this morning, and I'm going to say, Pray. Don't just listen to me pray, but pray with me as we ask for the power of the Spirit of Christ himself to move through these words, to open our eyes to see Jesus, to open our minds to understand these words as we celebrate the resurrected King, okay? So let's pray.
O death, where is your sting? O hell, where is your victory? Christ, you suffered. You were put to death, but you were made alive by the immeasurable power of the Spirit of the living God. That tomb was borrowed. The grave is now empty. Death has been defeated. Sin has been crushed. Life eternal can now be attained. Holy Spirit, I'm asking that you would come now and delight to empower the preaching of the word. I'm asking that you would clothe this time with your power from on high so that as we consider the good news of Easter, the good news that the man, Jesus Christ, was crucified, dead, and buried, went into that grave for three days, but by the immeasurably great power of the living Lord God, you called him forth from the dead, and he now stands in victory over Satan, sin, and death. Holy Spirit, would you cause these truths to make our hearts burn within us as you rip open the heavens and descend and inhabit the preaching of your word. Holy Spirit, come and do this. Set me aside and make this time now to be a demonstration of the Holy Spirit so that faith might come to rest in him who is the power of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name I pray, the name of Jesus, the resurrected righteous king. Amen. What I want you to do, just to start spinning our minds in the right direction as we think about this verse, is to imagine this scenario with me. So, so fire up the fuel of your imagination and, and track along with me here as we consider, consider this scenario. It's late at night. You've been working a hard day. You come home and you're ready to relax on the couch. And for you, relaxing on the couch tonight just looks like watching something on the television. But as you begin to flip through the channels, your time of expectant relaxation quickly devolves into that one thing we've all experienced, the infinite scroll, that hopeless search for something, that hopeless search for anything that just might be remotely entertaining to watch on television. And so as you start scrolling through the channels, you happen to come upon the church channel. You know that one channel with all the religious programming that you typically skip past quickly in order to get to something that's more entertaining. But for whatever reason, on this night, as you're going through the infinite scroll of all the channels, you stop. And you start watching Now, part of the reason that you stop is because the sweaty-faced preacher that is sitting there on the TV in front of you is so wound up with the things he's saying, it looks like he's about to explode. So, one, there's just an entertainment factor in it for you. But the other reason why you stop is partly out of curiosity. 
Because as you are just scrolling through all the voices of the channels that were coming to you late at night, there is one particular word that this sweaty-faced preacher said that just grabs your attention. And because of this, you begin to notice he's saying things like this. Friends, I've just got to ask you, are you saved? Jesus is the Savior, and salvation is found in him alone. Have you asked Jesus to save you? Now, as the preacher continues to do his thing, all these other words coming out of his mouth are falling to the ground. But on this night, you find yourself attracted to that word, saved. That idea of salvation. Jesus is the Savior. And as you're listening to him and your mind begins to think, you find yourself asking questions like this. Why on earth do I need to be saved? Saved from what? Saved to what? Why do I need saving in the first place? And perhaps more importantly, why is this whole saved, savior, salvation thing hinge on a single person whose name is Jesus Christ? Why is salvation found in him alone? Now maybe you're here this morning and when it comes to the jargon of saved, salvation, savior, these are just straight up familiar concepts to you. You've grown up in church, you've heard preachers say words like this, maybe you've had a grandma or a grandpa or an aunt or an uncle or a mom or dad explain these concepts to you. You hear the words and they sort of roll off you like water off a duck's back because you've just heard them before and you know what they are about. Or it could be possible that you're, you're here this morning and you've heard words and phrases like this, saved, salvation, savior. But the more you start to think about it, you're like, I, I don't know that I've ever really wrestled with those questions. I've heard preachers talk about my need to be saved, but I've never asked saved from what? Why do I need to be saved? Or perhaps you're here this morning and you just have no church background at all. Because when it comes down to it, you hear words like this, saved, salvation, and savior, it just doesn't land on you in any particular way. Because you just really honestly, truthfully have no category for it. No one's ever really said these words to you. No one's ever really explained these words to you. Perhaps when you start thinking about it, you can remember and go back in time to school when your friend in high school perhaps asked you these similar questions about saved and is Jesus your savior and stuff like this. But in all honesty, when your friend was talking about that in high school back in the day, you didn't care about it then. And you honestly just don't care about this whole saved idea now as you're sitting on the couch scrolling through the television stations. But what you need to know is this. Whether you find yourself in any of the above categories here this morning or you're here in some category altogether different, you need to know that you're not in a bad place for wrestling with this idea of what it means to be saved. It's a good thing that you're, you're wrestling and thinking about these, these words. Now, as a matter of fact, it's a good thing that you're here this morning as we celebrate Jesus raised from the dead because woven into the very fabric of Easter is the idea of why every one of us must be saved. 
You see, Easter Sunday is all about Jesus Christ. It's about Jesus Christ crucified, and it's about Jesus Christ resurrected so that his people would be saved from their sins. So when we think about Easter, it is necessary to think about why we must be saved. And if we're going to grow on our understanding of just this whole biblical idea of what it means to be saved, and more importantly, why this need to be saved applies to every single one of us here this morning, then we must turn our full attention to the suffering, to the death, and to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And guess what? 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 does this very thing for us. And so when you turn your attention to verse 18, maybe you've got it pulled up on your phone, maybe you've got your own copy of Scripture that you brought with you, or there's even hard-backed black Bibles that are floating around you in the seats, and maybe you grabbed a copy of those. What we're going to do is we're going to zoom in on verse 18. And as we look at verse 18, what we're going to see is that it has something to say to us about Easter And it has something to say to us about this whole saved idea. In particular, two key truths show up. And the first truth is this. Jesus suffered for your sins. Jesus suffered for your sins. Just look at what Peter writes in the front half of verse 18. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. In the front half of this verse, Peter is giving us the who of Easter. All right? He's giving us the who of Easter. He is telling us in the front half of verse 18 who we are, and he's telling us in the front half of verse 18 who Jesus is. Apart from the saving work of Christ, every man, every woman, every child falls into the category of what Peter calls the unrighteous. And according to the Bible, to be unrighteous is to not be right with God. It's to not have acceptance before God. The Bible also clearly says this unrighteousness is a universal condition. It's not just a category for rapists. It's not just a category for murderers. It's not just a category for racists. But it's also a category for religious moral do-gooders and everyone in between. Part of our temptation is to look at the world around us and say, you know what, I'll buy into this category of people being unrighteous, but it's for all those really bad people out there. It's for those rapists and the racists and the murderers and those really awful people who do really bad things. But the Bible clearly says that the common denominator that unifies all of humanity, past, present, future, man, woman, rich, poor, black, white, is that we are unrighteous before God. You see, left to ourselves, apart from God's saving grace, we are all under sin. Romans 3 says there is no one righteous, not even one. Why? For all have sinned and fall short 
for the glory of God. Describing this same universal condition with a set of words that's a little bit different, but driving at the same idea is the Apostle John. The Apostle John wrote the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And you can go to the end of the New Testament and find three letters that he wrote. 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. And in 1 John chapter 3, the Apostle John describes this universal condition of unrighteousness with this language. He says, listen, everyone who makes a practice of sinning practices lawlessness for, here it is, sin is lawlessness. So what does he mean by this? What he's saying, in other words, when he describes that sin is lawlessness, John is saying that anyone who breaks God's law is guilty of sin. And so what you can do is go back into the Old Testament to something as simple as the Ten Commandments, a list of ten of these big ones, God's law, and you can start going through them. Have you ever lied? Like, I'm not talking like big whopper lies. I'm talking about like when you told your wife this morning she looked good before she came here, and you're like, yeah, but not really. Right? That's the small lie. Brady's like, not me, bro. <laughs> He's like, that wasn't me over here, man. Right? So how about this one, you shall not steal. And you're like, man, like, I've never stolen any objects before, but have you ever just maybe stolen time from your employer? Your lunch break is 12 to 1, but you came rolling back at 1.15, because you're like, ah, what's 15 minutes? You're a thief. You stole 15 minutes from your employer. Or how about this one? You shall not murder. And so all my, hey, man, I've never killed anybody. But you jump into the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, and Jesus says this whole you shall not murder thing, it's, it's, it's more than just sticking a knife in somebody and taking the life of someone physically. It's at the heart level. And some of us know what it is to murder somebody in our heart. To hate them so bad where you almost, it's as if you're murdering them repeatedly. Some of us know what it is to murder somebody with our tongue. Because they got us so angry we shot out words that were like a dagger and we stabbed them to death with our words. Or how about this one? You shall not commit adultery. Now, some of us here would say, you know what, that's not me. I've never actually physically done that. But again, you go into Matthew chapter 5, and guess what? Jesus takes it down to the heart level again. He says, if you've broken the commandment, you shall not steal, and you stole that second glance of that person of the opposite sex. And you began to think about things in your mind of how you would like to interact with that person in a sexual way. You have committed adultery in your heart. Or how about this? Have you ever dishonored your parents? Or maybe you've taken God's name in vain. Or maybe you've broken the first commandment, which says, you shall have no other gods before me. And you've broken that first commandment by saying, you know what, like, I don't have little idols and little statues in my house. I don't have any other gods before me. But if we scan back and look at the panorama of your life, you do have other gods before the living God because money is your God. Power is your God. Sex is your God. Your job is your God. Your wife is your God. 
Your children are your God. So if you are here in this place and you're like, man, this isn't me. I can say all of these I haven't done. You go into the New Testament and some Old Testament professor came up to Jesus trying to stump him and said, hey, take that big fat chunk of the front half of the Bible called the Old Testament and boil it down for me. What does God want from me? Jesus said you can boil it down like this. The two greatest commandments, all the commandments of God can boil down to these things. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. But every one of us know what it's like to love ourselves more than our neighbor and to not sacrifice for them. And no one here, no one here can say every second, every minute, every hour, every day, every week, every month, every year, nonstop, without break, perfectly, have I loved God with my whole being. None of us can do it. We all stand before God as those who are unrighteous, not right, lawless, thus sinful, thus, according to 1 Peter, we fall into the category of the unrighteous. This is who we are, unrighteous in our sin. That's one half of the who of Easter. But Peter's not done. He says, but you got to know there's another half to the who of Easter. And he says, in stark contrast to who we are, you got to consider who Jesus is. And he says, Peter, that Jesus is the righteous one. Notice who suffered. And his suffering, it wasn't for nothing. His suffering was for sins, specifically for our sins. You see, Jesus is the sinless Son of God, the only person who can say every second, every minute, every hour, every day, week, month, year, decade, who has loved the Lord God perfectly, without fail, heart, soul, mind, body, strength, whole being, is Jesus. And that makes him the righteous one. And now what we find is that the righteous one is suffering. But notice that Jesus is the sinless Son of God. In every way possible, He is perfect. And in His perfection, He never wants sin. So in His suffering on the cross, you have to know that it was not a suffering for His sin, but it was a suffering for ours. We are the ones who deserve to suffer as the penalty for our sin, but at the cross, Jesus suffered in my place. He was despised and rejected by men. He was stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was betrayed. He was struck. He was abandoned. He was condemned. He was denied. He was accused. He was mocked. He was reviled. He was crucified as the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And it's this suffering once for sins which prompts the question, why? Why? Why the suffering? Why the crucifixion? Why the cross? See, you have to understand the who of Easter, unrighteous sinners, the righteous sufferer, in order to begin to grasp the why of Easter. 
And Peter says, I've got an answer for you concerning the why of Easter. And it's this. Jesus suffered on the cross so that Jesus can bring you to God. This is the why of Easter. So that Jesus can bring you to God. You see, Christ, the righteous one, suffered once for sins, as the verse continues, so that he might bring us to God. Listen, Christ suffered and died to pay the price for sins. To pay the price for sins fully, to pay the price for sins finally. He who was righteous and without sin took the place of unrighteous sinners, so Paul says, that in Jesus Christ we might become the righteousness of God. So do you see, this is why Jesus went to the cross and suffered for your sins. His purpose was to bring you to God. And this, says Peter, is exactly what Jesus accomplished in his death. The judgment of God against your sin separates you from God. Do you see this? The necessary separation of a holy God and unrighteous sinners, it has to be. Because God can have nothing to do with sin. See, this is the Christian conundrum. How in the world does a holy, righteous God have a relationship with unrighteous sinners? And the answer is Christ. Christ, his death on the cross. Apart from Christ's saving work, you and I are without hope. You and I are without God. But now, because of Christ's suffering, because of Christ's death on the cross, so that he might bring us near to God, anyone who is far off from God can be brought near. Anyone. No one is beyond the saving arm of the God who suffered and died for sinners. Nobody. Nobody. You might be going back to that list and you're going, oh Lord, those are me. I'm a liar. I'm a thief. I'm a murderer. I'm an adulterer. I'm an idol worshiper. I have other gods before me. What hope of salvation do I have? And I'm telling you, you have every hope of salvation. Because Jesus went to the cross to bring you to God. The unrighteous many can find salvation because the righteous one suffered and died in our place. See, this is the why of Easter. Why did Jesus suffer and die on the cross? Answer, so that he might bring you to God. That's the why of Easter. So notice it's the who of Easter, okay, which leads us to the why of Easter. And it's the why of Easter which then gives way to the how of Easter, And it's the how of Easter, which is so crucial because some of us here right now this morning are thinking this, great, great preacher guy, I get it, okay? The who of Easter, I'm an unrighteous sinner, 
This is who I am. Phenomenal. Christ is the righteous one. He suffered once for sins. This is who he is. We get it. And why did he suffer? He suffered so that he might bring me to God outstanding. I get it. But here's what I need to know. What proof do I have that Jesus can actually save me? How do I know for certain that he actually accomplished that task? Or more pointedly, how is Jesus the one who is qualified to bring me to God? You see, it's not just enough to know the who of Easter. It's not just enough to know the why of Easter. The good news of Easter is found when we try to answer the question to the how of Easter. How on earth, what proof has Jesus put forth to where we can look at him and say, Aha, he has proven he can actually bring me an unrighteous sinner and make me right with God. And God's resounding answer to the how of Easter, one word. And you know the word. Resurrection. Resurrection. Resurrection is the answer to the how of Easter. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, this is the proof that Jesus is qualified to make unrighteous sinners right with God. To put the words of the great theologian Johnny Cash into the mouths of to the mouth of Jesus. There ain't no grave can hold me down. There ain't no grave can hold my body down. You see, the fact that Christ was put to death in the flesh only to borrow that grave for three days because he was made alive by the Spirit, it's like the Apostle Peter has a giant flag and he's sitting here waving it going, this is the proof. This is the proof. Dead men don't usually go into graves and come out of it. Up until Christ and ever since Christ, dead men die and stay in graves. But Jesus is the one who died only to borrow a grave and then to walk out of that grave three days later. And that singular truth which distinguishes, I would agree with Tom, Christianity from every other world religion is this. God took on flesh, came to earth, the righteous one, to suffer and die in our place on the cross. He took the penalty for sins, which is death, and he actually died. And so then he goes into the grave because that's where dead people go. But if someone could actually walk out and say the wages of sin is death, baloney. I'm going to defeat death as the proof that I have power over sin. This is the person who can then say, I am the one qualified to look at you, unrighteous sinner, and say, come to me, because I can bring you to God. It's resurrection. This is the good news of Easter. Resurrection. This is what makes you for certain that you can have a right standing with God by the Spirit, God made Christ alive. And when Jesus was crucified, you just simply got to understand that he died in your place. 
But when he was raised from the dead, his resurrection proved he is the one with power over sin and death. What's the greatest enemy that we all fear? What's the greatest enemy? It's death. It's death. Some of us have been closer to death than others. And when you're staring at death and you whiff the aroma of death, it's in those moments your soul is crying out. I'm so glad someone's beaten death. I'm so glad that someone has walked out of the grave. I'm so glad his name's Jesus. I'm so glad he's the righteous one. I'm so glad he's the one who can bring me near to God because I can't bring myself. That's the implication of Easter. We have a problem. The problem is I need to be brought near to God. I need to be saved, but I cannot save myself. So when the sweaty-faced preacher on the church channel is screaming, has Jesus saved you? What he's saying is this. Listen, there's an implicit problem in the question. The very thing I'm asking, you cannot do for yourself, which is why we need somebody who has done it. Enter Easter. Enter resurrection. Enter borrowed tomb, empty grave, death put to death, sin crushed, life eternal. There in the ground his body lay, light of the world, by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. Listen, this is the good news of Easter. It's the good news of resurrection. The death of Jesus puts sin to death, and his victory over the grave is the proof that uniquely qualifies Jesus to be, listen, the Savior who saves unrighteous sinners. This is going all the way back to the whole little illustration of the TV thing that we're talking about. These are the answers to the questions right here. The proof that uniquely qualifies Jesus to be the Savior who saves unrighteous sinners is that Jesus is not a sack of bones in a Palestinian grave. That grave is empty. And so the question comes down to this. Do we got any sinners here today? Are there any sinners here today? Are there any unrighteous folks far from God who need to be brought near to God today? Is there anyone here this morning who needs the resurrected Savior to save them because they are the unrighteous sinner who needs to be brought near to God. I've got no other answer for you but the words of the scriptures which say, now is the day of salvation. Now is the day of salvation. For your sake, listen, 
personalize this. This is just 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. This is a verse in the Bible, but I'm wanting you to personalize this and hear it and receive it. For your sake. Not the rapist's sake. Not that racist that you know down the street. Not, not for his sake. For your sake. God made Christ Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. Why? So that in him you might be right with God. So your Easter this morning, as you consider the who, the why, and the how of Easter, is to ask, do I see myself in the realities of what we've just been talking about? You're either here this morning, and you've said, oh man, John, you've got to know, man, I've, I've run hard after these things. Man, the law, it exposed my sin, and I have run to Christ. I am in the unrighteous many, and I have looked to Christ, and I have said to Christ with childlike faith, Jesus, save me. Some of us are here this morning, and you're not quite there. You're asking, you're thinking, maybe you've got some doubts, maybe there's some skepticism, maybe you're seeking, and you're trying to figure this whole Jesus thing out. You are in an okay place. But my urging for you is still do not let the enemy come and take these truths from you as you go off to grandma's house and eat some mac and cheese and some ham. Okay? Because Satan would love for nothing better than for you to walk out this door and be like, oh yeah, grandma's ham is today, right? And then you start walking off and then all of these gospel truths just evaporate like a mist in the morning. Fight against that reality. Satan doesn't want you thinking about these things. Some of you are here this morning, and maybe the Holy Spirit is prompting you right now to say, man, we need to respond to this thing. Like, I don't need to wait for grandma's ham and mac and cheese. We need to, we need to, we need to do business with the Lord Jesus now. And so what's going to happen is Pastor Tom is going to come up and lead us through the Lord's Supper. The band is going to come and play. And as we go into that time of response... My encouragement for you is this. If you're here looking in the mirror of this verse and you're seeing yourself going, oh no, I am in the category of the unrighteous many and Jesus has not made me right with God. He's not saved me because I haven't asked him to save me. I haven't looked to him because, one, I didn't even think I needed to be saved. But now I'm thinking like I need to be saved like God is working on me and exposing my heart. What you need to do right now in the midst of these things going on is you need to stay in your seat and you need to talk to Jesus like you talk to a friend. And you can come to him with the most simplest of prayers of something like this. Jesus, I'm unrighteous. You're the righteous one. You bring unrighteous people to God. Jesus, please bring me to God. And guess what Jesus would love to do in that moment and would do in that moment and will do in that moment? Save your soul. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much. The good news of Easter, resurrection. God, thank you that my Savior, the living Son of God, the resurrected King, is not dead. He is alive. Why are you here looking for the living among the dead? He is alive. So God, as we now turn to a time of response, take these truths 
of Easter, the good news that Jesus suffered for my sins so that Jesus can bring me to God, may these truths go down deep into the very core of who we are and may the result that comes out of us be a heart that is brimming and overflowing with love for a Savior who gave himself for me even while I was yet still a sinner. And may our response be worship. Worship in the Lord's Supper. Worship in song. Worship in prayer. May today be the day of salvation for some who are here just now hearing the good news of the gospel. Holy Spirit, work. It's in your name I pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.